Okay. Uh, so I was just, I was actually just saying to Aaron, that was the best intro I've ever had. Um, so thanks for that, Aaron. Aaron's a good friend and a brother, and I'm so grateful that you would allow me to come and share. Um, my wife, Kristen, is here. We uh, would call Sioux Center a second home. We have a lot of good friends here and people that we consider to be family to us. So thanks for welcoming us back. Um, so as Aaron said, I work for an organization called Partners Relief and Development. And Partners, uh, our motto is free, full lives for children affected by conflict and oppression. Uh, and we get that from something that Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And there is a lot of stealing and killing and destroying going on in the world. Jesus says there's a lot of that happening, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what we do is go into the places where the thief is very active. We go into places where there's war and where there's genocide. Places where children have lost parents and have been displaced. Places like Syria and Iraq and Yemen in the Middle East and, uh, and in Myanmar and Thailand and Bangladesh in Southeast Asia. And we confront firsthand the stealing and killing and destroying and we try our best to bring life to the full through holistic action. Um, and like I said, we do that in some of the hardest places on the planet. Here's the map of the, the countries where we're currently operating. And, um, and as uh, Aaron said, I was just in Bangladesh. And when you go to a place like Bangladesh and you're with a group of people like the Rohingya, who I was with last week, people who in 2017 suffered a genocide at the hands of their own government. And you meet people like a little boy I met named Mamun. Mamun, both of his parents, he's about nine or ten years old, both of his parents were murdered in front of him by the military in Myanmar. And then the, the soldiers turned their focus on him. They beat him so severely they thought they'd killed him. And they threw his body in the Naf River. And then a fisherman came along and pulled him out and brought him to the other side of the, of the river to Bangladesh. And he lives in that home. And you know that kids like Mamun who now has severe cognitive damage from the beating that he took and can't quite see correctly out of his eyes. You know that there are just hundreds, thousands of children like Mamoon who've, who've just been exposed to the worst trauma in the world. And, um, and it's really awesome to read the words of Jesus where he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And it's fun to beat your chest and say, we're going to bring life to the full. But when you actually look at Mamoon in the eyes... And you realize that there's just more suffering out there than you can possibly do anything about. And that there are just, I mean, it's just happening all over the place. Not just in Bangladesh, but around the world. Uh, it's easy to, to slip into despair. And you, friends, are inheriting this world. <laughs> I mean, you're inheriting a world filled with trauma and filled with violence and filled with conflict. You're inheriting some of the largest problems ever to face humanity. You know, there are now more people migrating around the globe, many of them by fo being forced to do so, than ever before in human history. Almost 69 million people around the world that you and I might call refugees or internally displaced people. 69 million people who cannot go home. 52% of them are children. Most of them have been exposed to extreme violence. And you're inheriting that world, right? So despair... It comes easy when you go to some of these places. Despair comes easy here too, whether it's Syria or Bangladesh or it's the tragedy next door. It's easy to feel hopeless. 
So this morning, I, I wanted to share with you a story from the Gospels that's helped me to know what to do. This story is simple, it's familiar, but it's sort of been like a North Star. Two things that Jesus says in it have redirected me and have kept me away from hopelessness and have continued to move us towards bringing life to the full. So the story that uh, we're going to read today is from Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, Jesus has come uh, to Jerusalem preparing for uh, the last week of his life. And here's what it says. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. Okay, so right away in the story, uh, we sort of set the scene, right? Jesus is in the midst of a crisis. Jesus and his people are in the midst of a crisis. His life is being threatened. I remember not that long ago, several years ago, Aaron uh, pointed out one day that in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, right before this passage, Jesus tells his disciples three different times, I'm going to die. And each time they respond, no, you're not. Right? He, he describes a crisis to, to them. He tells them exactly what's going to happen, but each time they refuse to face it. So that's, that's the story that we're reading today. There's a crisis. It's coming but nobody will face it. Let's keep reading. Verse 3 says, While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So just imagine yourself at a dinner party. Jesus is there. All the guests are sitting around talking. Maybe Jesus is teaching, saying something wise and interesting. People laughing at jokes, passing around the wine and the bread. And then it gets quiet. And you look at somebody's face and their eyes are pointed towards the door. So you follow their eyes to the door and there's a woman. Now Luke tells us that this woman has a bad reputation. Luke tells us that this woman doesn't belong in this room. But there she is. She's not invited, but she showed up anyways. And making matters worse, she's crying. <laughs> How awkward is that? She's just standing there crying. You're hoping that she'll just walk away, but she doesn't. She takes a step across the threshold, and another step, and another step, and then you realize she's holding something in her hands. You're not quite sure what it is. And then, oh no, she's, she's walking towards Jesus. This is getting really awkward. Her face is red. The tears keep coming. Her sobs are starting to get louder. She walks up to Jesus, who's reclining, and he doesn't even move. doesn't flinch. What's wrong with him? Doesn't he know what's happening? And then he breaks the jar open, and he, or she breaks the jar open, and she pours it on his head, and the smell fills the room. I mean, it's overpowering. Kind of makes you choke a little bit. There's so much of it, right? It's so embarrassing. And everybody just freezes, unsure of what to do. Now imagine that woman, right? What was going through her mind? You think she had second thoughts? Like at any moment in that time, do you think she thought, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what I was thinking when I woke up this morning, but I'm rethinking it now. You think there was a moment where she wondered if she could still get out of this? Like pretend that she just walked into the wrong house? 
How many of you have ever fallen downstairs and pretended like it was on purpose? Yeah. Her heart was probably racing. She saw all these eyes on her, all these, all these people who were familiar, probably some faces that weren't. She feels irrational. She feels senseless. She realizes she's some, at somebody else's dinner party. Now, most of us would probably turn around and walk out, but she doesn't. And so here's the question, I think, at the heart of the story. Why doesn't she walk away? What is it that gives her the courage to continue to walk towards Jesus? What is it that pushes her through all the things that make the rest of us turn around and go home? I think it's because she knows something that nobody else knows. I think it's because she's willing to face something that no one else is willing to face. I think she's the only person who actually believes Jesus when he says he's going to die. She's the only one who's willing to face the crisis. And so she does the only thing she knows to do, which is anoint his body for the grave. Let's keep reading verse 4. Not everybody sees her gift as a gift. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And then they rebuked her harshly, which normally this is a reasonable argument, right? I mean, this is rational. This is strategic. Go help the poor. Do something useful. But here's the thing. This story is not about the poor. Usually it is, right? Usually when Jesus is doing something, it's about the poor, it's about the blind, it's about the lame, it's about the outcast. But this story is not about that. This story is about a crisis. This story is about the death of the Messiah. And this woman knows that. She knows what story she's in. And so she does the only thing that she can do. And she anoints his body for the grave. I love what Jesus says next in chapter 6. If you're the kind who underlines things in your Bible, this would be a great part to underline. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Isn't that cool? She's done a beautiful thing to me. That word beautiful is translated from the original Greek in which Mark was, was written. That word beautiful is the Greek word kalos. And kalos means good and beautiful, but it's a particular kind of beauty. It's beauty that inspires others to embrace what is good and beautiful. There's another word for beauty that means just something that's just on the face of it, on the surface, aesthetically beautiful. It's nice to look at, but this isn't that kind of beauty. This is the kind of beauty that inspires others to embrace what is good and beautiful. This is the kind of beauty that multiplies. This is the kind of beauty that grows. And Jesus says that's what she's done. She's done something so beautiful that it will inspire others to embrace what is good and beautiful. What should you do in the face of a crisis? Do something beautiful. That's what you should do. Do something beautiful. Do something beautiful that inspires others to embrace what is good and beautiful. Let me tell you, in the face of a crisis or a perceived crisis, there are people who will be addicted and committed to doing ugly things. People love to do ugly things. Don't buy into it. 
Do something beautiful. Do something so beautiful that it will inspire others to do something beautiful. So eventually the perpetrators of the ugly things will be, will be pushed out. Will be drowned out by so much beauty. Don't get caught in cycles of inefficiency or, or frozen by the fact that you can't save every single mamoon in the world. Just do something beautiful. Ask yourself, what's the beautiful thing that I can do? Do something beautiful that inspires more beauty. And, and here's the thing. This is how all virtues work. All virtues work like beauty does. Generosity inspires generosity. Kindness inspires kindness. Have you ever seen a Coke commercial? It's the entire premise. Mercy always inspires mercy. In fact, when you experience mercy, you see somebody being merciful, and then that person who's received mercy is not merciful, something inside of you says, that's wrong, right? Because mercy is supposed to inspire mercy. Love is supposed to inspire love, and beauty inspires beauty. And that is how you face the great challenges of the world, whether it's in Syria or it's in Bangladesh or it's in Michigan, or it's in Iowa. Whether you're facing down a war, or a genocide, or a terminal illness, or a divorce, do something beautiful. Of course, doing something beautiful doesn't just happen. Right? This woman teaches us that. This woman has vision. She's willing to see the world as it is. She's willing to face the crisis. Much of what's happening in our culture right now is an unwillingness to actually face what's truly happening. We have to be willing to face reality, face the crisis around us. And then this woman has courage. She has the courage to do something, to take action. Doing something beautiful always takes vision and courage. Now, if you're, uh, if you're playing along at home, you're probably wondering what what kind of beautiful thing could I possibly do in the face of a crisis or a challenge around the world or maybe in your own life? What beautiful thing can I possibly do? Well, let's keep reading because Jesus gives us another clue in verse 8. He says, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. What did she do? She did what she could. She didn't think about all the things that she couldn't do. She just did what she could. While I was in Bangladesh, I met a woman named Hadisa. Hadisa is 18 years old. She's been a teacher since she was 15, so she's a veteran. Hadisa is Rohingya, just like Mamun. These are folks who just experienced the genocide, as I said, in 2017. All of them have multiple traumas that they're working through. So Hadisa has a one-room schoolhouse with 34 children in it. These children range in age from 5 years old to 17 years old. All various levels of, uh, of competency in math and reading and English and things like that. But Hadisa is, she's amazing. Hadisa has been planted in some really hard soil. Been, she finds herself right in the middle of a crisis, but Hadisa has decided that she's going to do something beautiful, and she's going to do what she's can, she can, and she's going to be a teacher. She's Mamoon's teacher. Lucky for Mamoon. What beautiful thing can you do? Sometimes the most beautiful thing you can do is be a teacher. 
Don't think about all the things you can't do. Don't make excuses. Don't freeze. Don't worry about all the ugly in the world or the people who push it. Don't ignore it. Don't run away. Don't give in to despair. Do something beautiful and do what you can. So what beautiful thing is God asking you to do this morning? You know, the amazing thing about schools, like the one that Hadisa runs in Bangladesh, is that these schools, the, the beautiful thing about a school is that the beauty grows. So when a child goes to school, they have somewhere to be, right? They belong somewhere. When a child puts on a school uniform, right, the whole world knows that they actually have a future because they're going to school. The only reason to go to school is if you have a future, right? And then when kids are at, uh, at school, they're much less likely to be exploited by predators because someone is paying attention to them. Hadith's watchful gaze is covering those 34 children. So predators, they, they really don't have a chance to get at kids like Mamoon and the other little boys and girls in his class. And extremists, I mean, the tool of extremists is hopelessness. Radical extremists, they target kids who are hopeless about their future. But when you're in school, you have a future. You have a hope. You want to know what the antidote to extremism is around the world? It's hope. You want to fix the world? Build schools and train teachers. It's the secret weapon of the kingdom of God. Anybody here going to be a teacher? You're the special forces, right? When you put a kid in school and these terrible places, what happens is they have hope, and that hope grows, and that beauty multiplies, and it inspires more beauty. So what I'm here to tell you this morning is don't get bogged down. Don't be daunted by the enormity of the crisis. In 1 John 3, 18, it says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech. There's a lot of words and speech floating around about these crises, but Instead, let us love with actions and truth. The key to facing the great challenges of the world, the great challenges of your generation, is to do something. It's to act. It's to do something beautiful and do what you can. We close with this from the Talmud. Oh, I guess we don't have it. Maybe we do. I don't know. I'll just read it to you. The Talmud is a commentary on, uh, on the Hebrew Bible. It says, this is commentary on Matthew 6. Or Micah 6, 8, excuse me. This is love, just, love, mercy, walk humbly. Right, that one. Seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly. It says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. And there's so much grief in the world. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Walk humbly now. Have mercy now. You are not obligated to complete the work but neither are you free to abandon it. You're not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. So do something beautiful and just do what you can. The world is counting on you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears, Holy Spirit, our minds and our hearts, our hands and our feet, that we would listen to the beautiful thing you're calling us to do, that we would not be bogged down or daunted by the enormity of the world's crises, the world's grief, the world's pain, but instead we would become the body of Christ, the church, flexing our muscles 
so that the beautiful things in the world can grow and spread, so that the beauty will choke out the ugly. We pray that you would show us how to do that in Syria and Iraq and Yemen, in Myanmar and Bangladesh and Thailand, in Sioux Center, and in all places. May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Brothers and sisters, do something beautiful. Do what you can. Go in peace.